Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. Please open your Bibles with us and join us as we study through the book of Psalms. For more information about our church, please visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co. The rest of us, let's open up to the book of Psalms. Chapter 23, one of the most famous, most beloved passages in all the scriptures is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Rightly so, this is truly a masterpiece that that David has written. Charles Spurgeon called it the Pearl of the Psalms. And and this, this psalm here, Psalm 23, is one that some of you may have on like a picture hanging at home, or an Afghan, or it's, it's just much beloved. Children memorize it uh, as kids. It's recited at weddings. It's preached at funerals. It's read at sickbeds. Charles Allen, in his book, God's Psychiatry, said if people would repeat Psalm 23 seven times before they go to sleep each night, we would rarely see an emotional breakdown. This is just such a powerful, such an amazing statement that God makes. But this psalm, which just means song, this song here is not for everyone. This song makes incredible statements, but they're not statements for everyone. Psalm 23 is the exclusive testimony of the person who is walking with the Lord. It's not the testimony of everyone, everywhere, all the time. It's the testimony of God's people, those people who have an actual relationship with the living God. So let's read it together. Psalm 23, if you would stand together to honor God's word. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you for this incredible song that you have given to us. This song that that as your people makes amazing statements about you and the way you relate to us and, and about what's in store for us. So I pray, God, that you would speak to us from your word this morning. I pray, God, that you'd give us attentive hearts uh, that, that these words that, that many of us have heard time and time again, many of us have them memorized, God, that, that you would speak afresh from your word to our hearts this morning. I pray for myself as I preach your word. God, let the words of my mouth and the very meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. This is a psalm that... that If there's any fault with it at all, it's that we know it and love it so well that we can tend to gloss over the amazing things that it's saying. 
which then is not really a fault with the psalm, it's a fault with us. But this psalm starts with this superscription, a psalm of David. When you see those things in the psalms, uh, those are not just, just headings that uh, the, the publishers of the Bible put in. When you see words like that, a psalm of David, that's actually in there. Uh, a psalm of David, that's pretty much all we know about the historical background of this psalm. We know that David wrote it, but we don't know when David wrote it. We don't know what the circumstances were. We don't know if he wrote it as a young shepherd boy sitting in the field with his sheep. We don't know if he he wrote it as an old wise king. We don't know if he wrote it during a moment of peaceful reflection or if he he wrote it in the midst of war. We don't know what it is. But, But what we do know is that whatever the circumstances were, David was able to say of God, the Lord is my shepherd. The big idea, if there, if there was one big idea that we could get through, it's found in these, these first words. It's this, the Almighty is not just the shepherd, the Almighty is my shepherd. If we could read those words, Christians, and, and, and really take that to heart, he's not just the shepherd, he is my shepherd. And I, I would just ask you right from the start this morning as we go through this passage to consider that thought, is that my testimony? Is that true of me. Can you say that the Lord is your shepherd? John Stott, the great theologian, said it. A Christian cannot read or sing this psalm without thinking of Jesus Christ, who dared to reapply the metaphor from Jehovah to himself. That, that Jesus Christ took this metaphor, the Lord as our shepherd, and, and he said, This is talking about me. And in John chapter 10, verse 11, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Hebrews 13.20 says that Jesus is the great shepherd. 1 Peter 5 verse 4 says that Jesus is the chief shepherd. But the question for us this morning is, is he your shepherd? We know that he is the chief shepherd. He is the great shepherd. And that does you zero good if he's not your shepherd. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? Do you know the living God. Charles Spurgeon, meditating on on this passage, said, if he be a shepherd to no one else, he's a shepherd to me. He cares for me. He watches over me. He preserves me. Can you say that? Can you say what, what Charles Spurgeon said? If not, then I would plead with you this morning to listen to the words of this psalm. Let this psalm woo you. Let, let this statement about what God does for his people cause in you a desire to be one of his people. Let, let, let it make you run to the cross of Jesus Christ. Let it lead you to repent of your sins, to put your faith in Jesus for salvation from the holy wrath of God. And you will discover more and more each day the truth that we are going to read in this psalm, the truth that we're going to study. Psalm 23 testifies to the fact that three things we're going to look at. The Lord watches over his people. The Lord walks with his people, and the Lord welcomes his people. I realize those are three W's, and that hurts me a little bit in my heart. Uh, but they were three really helpful phrases in a commentary that I read, and uh, I, I sat there for a while just trying to think of better words that didn't alliterate, uh, and I couldn't come up with better words. So there we are, the three W's. Number one, the Lord watches over those who, who trust in him. Verse one, the Lord is my Shepherd, I shall not want. 
The truth of that statement is this. If God is your shepherd, if you can truly say of God, he is my shepherd, you have nothing to worry about. There's truly nothing ultimate for us to worry about. We can live with confidence knowing that God is watching over us, knowing that God is watching over our physical needs. Look at verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still water. So David here is going to use this shepherd-sheep metaphor. We see it a lot of times throughout the Bible. It's such a beautiful picture. But he says of himself as the sheep, the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. The truth about sheep is this. They're not known as great hunters. You won't, I trust, if you go out into the woods early in the morning looking for a deer, see a tree stand with a sheep sitting in it. I'm bagging this baby. This is mine. They're not great hunters. They actually, in fact, if they get hungry, will satisfy their hunger in some bad places. Uh, sheep will, will just start to eat whatever. Uh, in order to satisfy their hunger. They need a faithful shepherd to lead them to green pastures where they can graze, or they will not be healthy. It says, he leads me to green pastures, and then he makes them lie down in it. He makes me to lie down in the green pastures. The shepherd knows what's best for the sheep. The shepherd knows what the road ahead is for the sheep, and he knows that the sheep need rest, or else they're not going to be able to make the journey. So he leads them to the right place. He makes them lie down in green pastures. And I would just say, this is what God does for us. God does these things for us, and we may not recognize that that that's what's going on. You may be in the midst of the rat race in life, and you just feel totally wiped out and worn out, and you have to spend a whole day in bed. And you go, this isn't fair, God. What's going on in my life? The truth is God's making you lie down. You can lie down or you can be made to lie down, but God knows what's best for you. Then the sheep need something to drink. So the shepherd leads them beside still water. So just like the pastures need to be green, the waters need to be still. When, when thirsty sheep come to running waters and they desperately need a drink, if their coats get wet, they fall over, they lose their balance, and they drown. So a sheep is not going to drink from running water. So they need the, she the shepherd to either dam up the water or they need him to, to make some sort of little diversion of the water so they can drink from still waters. And, and the Lord watches over our physical needs in the same way, David says, that the shepherd watches over the physical needs of the sheep. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. Literally, everything we have, God gave it to us. Everything we've got, the next breath that comes, comes from your lungs, God gave you that breath. You don't have anything that God didn't give to you, but it does not mean that the sheep are smart enough to recognize that it all came from the shepherd. When the sheep are lying down in the green pastures, drinking from the still waters, there's not a thought process that says, hey, if it wasn't for this shepherd, I wouldn't have any of this. I'd be in real trouble. The truth is, sheep aren't always smart enough to recognize it, but it's true. Everything we have comes from God. The Lord watches over our, our spiritual needs. Look at verse 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I, I love these two statements. The Lord restores my soul. Keeping that sheep metaphor, it means that, that when you wander away, the Lord provides restoration for you. He restores you. The, the shepherd 
provides for everything for the sheep. He leads them to green pastures. He causes them to, to lie down and rest there. He gives them still water to drink from. He's provided for every need that the sheep have, and yet the sheep still wander away. Why do they do that? Well, they do that because sheep are sheep. Sheep are not particularly well known for their SAT scores. They're not the brightest creatures in the world. So sometimes sheep seek for their nourishment in barren pastures. Sometimes sheep try to drink from polluted waters. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we, like sheep, have a tendency to stray off. Isaiah says specifically what it means to stray. It's not just you kind of got lost for a little bit and went your own way. It means we have turned our backs on God. We have gone our own way. We have turned from God to iniquity. Iniquity just means sin, unrighteousness. We've turned from God to unrighteousness, but the good shepherd does not leave us or forsake us. The good shepherd restores our soul. Isaiah says he lays the iniquity of our straying on Jesus Christ, and God grants to us righteousness and forgiveness that rightfully belongs to Christ. Martin Luther called that the great exchange. On the cross, Jesus Christ took our iniquity and gave us his righteousness. So the Lord restores us when we stray, but more than that, the Lord provides guidance to keep us from straying away. Again, verse 3, he restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. There is such great assurance in a statement like that. If you can say that of God, what confidence that gives. What, a, what assurance that is. That God will faithfully lead those who trust in him. What's even better than that, he's not just leading us. He's leading us in a specific place. He's leading us in the paths of what? In the paths of righteousness. God is leading us on straight paths. We can trust God to do what is right. God says, I will lead my people, and we can trust that every way he leads us is good. Whether we see it or don't see it. The best news of all, though, it says he leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. For his name's sake. We're not actually the center of God's universe. God is the center of God's universe. All of this providing for us, all of this restoring us, all of this leading us in the right paths is for his glory. It's because of his greatness, not because of our greatness. And that's actually incredible news for us. Philip Keller wrote a book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And he said that shepherd would, would raise sheep for their wool, and then they would need to take the sheep to the market to sell their coats. And, and, and because the coat was so valuable, the shepherd would, would seek the best, like sort of the path of least resistance to get that sheep to the marketplace so that any damage that came to the sheep was going to directly affect the shepherd's pocketbook. And so the shepherd was interested in choosing his path carefully. Eventually, though, if a shepherd came time after time after time to the marketplace, the buyers in the marketplace stopped examining every sheep and just began to say, if it came from this guy, I know I can trust it. So, so they would then accept the sheep on behalf of the shepherd 
for his name's sake. Because this shepherd had such a name, they would accept the sheep. That's how the Lord leads us. He leads us for his namesake. He leads us in the paths of righteousness. This is why it's great news that God is more concerned with himself than he is with us. Because if, if God's highest good in all the universe is the glory of his own name, and then he makes a statement to us, he will lead you in the paths of righteousness for that name. That means God has taken the thing that's most valuable in all the universe, and he's wrapped you up inside of it. So if God is not faithful to you, if God does not lead you in the paths of righteousness, his name's on the line. His name would be tarnished, and God will never, ever allow his name to be tarnished. If you're that sheep that wanders off, that God does not restore, his name is tarnished. This is the greatest news ever. It's incredible news. God's reputation is at stake in you, Christian. God's word is at stake in you. Albert Einstein's wife, the, the great physicist Albert Einstein, was, his wife was once asked if she understood his theory of rel relativity. Do you, do you understand your husband's theory? And she said, no, I don't, but I know my husband. And if he says it, it's true. How much more should we be able to say that about God? How much more should we trust God and say, you know what, I don't know how it all works. But if God has says it, it's true. So, the Lord watches over those who trust him. God watches over his people and we can count on it. We can believe it because he's said it. He said that he will. Number two, the Lord walks with those who trust in him. When we get to verse four, there's this major shift that takes place. In the first three verses, David has been referring to God as he. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. But look what happens in verse 4. Verses 4 and 5. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. It's almost as if David has been meditating on the greatness of God to his people. On the great promises that, that God's people have of how God will care for them. And it has caused in him an instant application where he looks at his own life and he says, wait a minute, this is true of, like, forget the shepherd sheep thing. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're with me. This is why theology is so important. This is why I, I just lose my mind when I hear people say they don't care about theology, they don't care about doctrine. Uh, there's nothing more practical in the life of the Christian than good theology. There's nothing more practical than good doctrine. And here's what makes it so practical. Good theology, good doctrine, isn't just knowledge. It is knowledge. It requires knowledge. We have to know the truth about God. We have to believe rightly, but it must lead to worship or it's not good theology. So I hate it when people talk about dead, you know, they got good theology, but it's dead theology. No, they don't have good theology. Theology always leads to worship if it's right. That's what happens here with David. John Piper sums this up like this. 
We should frequently interrupt our talking about God by talking to God. Not far behind the theological sentence, God is generous, should come the prayerful sentence, thank you, God. On the heels of God is glorious should come, I adore your glory. That's what we see happening with David here. David goes from talking about God to talking to God. In the first three verses, David is declaring that God is worthy of trust. God is worthy of your trust. God is good. God is faithful. God is sufficient. And then the scene shifts. He not only shifts his language, he he shifts the, the scene. So we're no longer out in the field as a sheep. Not in those green pastures. Not by the still waters. Now he's in the dark valley. But his confidence in God hasn't changed. It hasn't changed when he's lying down beside still waters in a green pasture. And it doesn't change when he's now in the dark valley. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There's, there's bad news here and there's good news. The bad news is this, your trust in God is not going to keep you from going through the valley of the shadow of death. It, it will not do that. After his son died of an incredibly rare disease, Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote the bestseller, maybe you've heard of it, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Unfortunately, he gave a wrong answer to that question. In fact, he gave an incredibly destructive answer to that question. And maybe it was inevitable that he was going to do that because the question itself is misguided. That question, why do bad things happen to good people, is an incredibly misguided question. Number one, it assumes that there are good people in the first place, contrary to what God's Word says. There's only one who was ever good. So the question is wrong right from the start. But more than that, Kushner's question assumed that good people should not have bad things happen to them. If there were this magical good person, then bad things shouldn't happen to them. And that's simply not true. In the book of Job, we, we, we see this played out in, in graphic detail. Job chapter 5, verse 7 says, Man is born to trouble. As the sparks fly upward. In chapter 14, verse 1, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. Bad things don't just happen to bad people, they happen to all people. Everyone suffers in this earthly life, including the only good and righteous person who ever lived, Jesus Christ. Bad things happen to all people. And so David says, there are times when I'm going to go through this dark valley, the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, how much, how much worse could that valley be? The valley of the shadow of death. But this is not an indictment of the shepherd. The shepherd is always good. The shepherd is only good. And David says, I'm not there because I strayed away. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, David is not saying because I turned my back on God and, and walked away from him because he just told us in verse 3 that he's led where? By the good shepherd. In the paths of righteousness. So what does that mean? What does that mean to, to be said, he leads me in the paths of righteousness and then immediately following that to say, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It means this. It means that there are times when the righteous ways of God 
that he requires his sheep to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That means that the valley of the shadow of death is every bit as much of one of those paths of righteousness as the green pasture and the still waters were. For us in our lives, when we're going through the green pasture and the still waters, we can easily say, thank God, you're, you're leading me, you've brought me to this place. When we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we shake our fist to heaven and we say, God, where are you? And the truth is, that's every bit as much the path of righteousness as that green pasture was. If we will surrender to that truth, it will save us so much despair. It will save us so much of that hopeless, helpless feeling that says, I guess God has it in for me. I don't know what I did. I guess I just stink. I don't know why things are the way they are. If we will just give in to the fact that this is as, as much the path of righteousness as that is, it will save us so much heartache, so much pain. The valley of the shadow of death is just a poetic way of describing a deep darkness. This valley that's so deep and so dark that the shadow of death seems to have hidden the sun. We can't see our way out. It's the worst place we can imagine. This phrase can, can apply to death itself, actual physical death, but it really is meant to speak of any dark situation. Anything you can't see your way out of. So a sick bed can be a valley of the shadow of death. A broken heart can be the valley of the shadow of death. Divorce court can absolutely be the valley of the shadow of death. Some unmet need, the death of a loved one, the loss of your reputation, all of these things could be that valley of the shadow of death that we walk through. And I repeat, your obedience to God, your trust in Him, your confidence in Him, it will not keep you out of that valley. None of us escape that valley. But remember this, it's only a shadow. That's what David says. It's the valley of the shadow of death. God has granted you life, and that means no one can cause death to come upon you. It's a shadow. John Phillips said it like this, the shadow of a dog can't bite. The shadow of a sword can't kill, and the shadow of death cannot harm the child of God. So the bad news is you will have to go through the valley. But the good news is this. Your trust in God will keep you from living in fear of the dangers that threaten you in that valley. See, David didn't have any control over his reality. Not in this psalm. The, the shepherd had led him to the green pastures, and then the shepherd had led him to the valley of the shadow of death. David was not in control of his circumstances, but David was in control of his response to those circumstances. And David chose not to be afraid. David said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Even though there are real things to be afraid of in the valley of the shadow of death. I always sort of picture Dorothy and her little band of misfits walking through the dark forest, saying lions and tigers and bears. Oh, thank you. Even though there were evil, treacherous, dangerous things lurking in the valley, David knew this, I'm not walking by myself. And if you are trusting in the Lord, then neither are you. Man, it calls to, to mind that picture of the young child who would be very much afraid on their own in some circumstance, but dad is there. What could I possibly be afraid of? I can, I can remember being a kid and feeling like if mom and dad are there, 
There's literally nothing that can happen. Even though we got mugged when I was a kid in San Francisco. I should have known bad things could happen. I really just felt like there's no way anything bad could happen to me if they're here. That's the picture here. David says there's terrible things all around, but look who I got with me. The Lord is present help to you. If you are his, he is present help to you. David isn't afraid of any evil thing in the valley because his shepherd is with him, and that is the believer's testimony. Whatever your valley might be, you're not walking through it by yourself. You aren't walking alone. God is with you. Psalm 16, verse 8 says this, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Isaiah 8, verse 10, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word and it will not stand, for God is with us. Finally, Isaiah 41, verse 10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Christian, you are not walking through your valley alone. You may be going through the most horrible circumstance, worse than you could have imagined, and you're not alone. The Lord is present help to you. More than that, the Lord is prepared to help you. Not just in this moment, but in the future. James Montgomery Boyce said, We are never so conscious of the presence of God as when we pass through life's valleys. I mean, can you look back on the events of your life and say, in my dark times, there was God. Many people think that God has left them when they're going through the valley. But those who live in confidence in God find that God draws near to them when they're walking through the valley. So David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So David says, because I know you're leading me in the paths of righteousness, because you are my shepherd, because you are are doing only good to me, when I walk through this valley, I have no fear. And David says, I have no fear because you got a rod and a staff in your hand. That's the basic equipment of a shepherd. In one hand was a rod, that's just a club. It was a weapon. It was protection. The other hand, a staff, a long stick. The staff really served three purposes. One was counting. You would count the sheep. The shepherd knew how many sheep he had. If one wandered off, the shepherd knew one had wandered off because they weren't a nameless white blob following him. He knew how many sheep. He knew which ones they were. And the truth is, Christian, because your shepherd has his staff, you will not be forgotten. You will not be lost. You will not be overlooked. The second thing they did was to spur the flock along if they were kind of lagging a little bit. The shepherd might provide a bit of an encouragement to keep moving along. And finally, to bring that wandering sheep back into the fold. So in other words, the shepherd did not travel empty-handed. And David said, I do not have fear in the valley of the shadow of death because you are with me and you are not empty-handed. Handed. I am comforted. My heart is at ease. I know everything is going to be all right. Why? Because you've got your rod and your staff in your hand. The truth is, Christians, we are walking in a dangerous place. But we are not walking alone. 
And the one who walks with us is armed and dangerous. That's our reality. That's our truth. David says, God is on my side. He's walking with me. And so his rod and staff, they comfort me. God uses them on my behalf. Now, if you see the the mightiest being in the universe, and you think there's a chance that his rod and staff are there because he's mad at you, that's a problem. But if the mightiest being in the universe is walking with you and he says, hey, take a look at me, nobody's going to lay a finger on you. I can remember being a seventh grader and the biggest, toughest guy at Westview High School. I was best friends with his little brother, and so he had decided no one is going to do anything. So I was the worst seventh grader you can imagine in your whole life. I was the biggest jerk you've ever met because I knew Ron Murley was going to beat somebody up if they laid a finger on me. I will say and do whatever I want to whoever I want. Uh, in, In a much less sinful and depraved way, that's the reality of what David says about us and God. God is a dangerous, dangerous being, and he is for you. His rod and his staff are for your good. That's amazing. That is amazing. Third, then, the Lord welcomes in those who trust in him. Verse 5, the scene shifts again. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So, so the, the setting shifts. We've been in that beautiful pastoral setting in the green pastures with the still waters. We've been in the dark valley of the shadow of death. And as David reflects on God's might, focused on his behalf, the scene shifts again. And although this is called the shepherd's psalm, there's actually two metaphors that are used in this psalm. The first is God as shepherd, and the second is God as gracious host. And that's where, where David's attention turns. We're no longer in the, in the flock. We're now a guest in God's house. And the truth of these words is this. You can live in the abundance of God's generous hospitality towards you. God is overly generous to his people. And you can live your life right now in the truth of that. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. This verse describes three ways that God demonstrates his hospitality, his his kindness, his generosity towards those who trust in him. David says, look look around me. Look at my enemies. You prepare a table. I'm surrounded by enemies. You prepare a table. How is there more confidence than sitting down to a banquet when surrounded by enemies? What greater show of confidence is that? I'm surrounded by people who want to kill me. I'm thinking about these ribs. You might do that anyway if you're just a horrible glutton. But David has good reason to do it. He pictures himself as as having been invited to the court of the king, to this banquet that the king has prepared for him. You are the guest of honor at the table. And then David looks around and he says, my enemies are all here too. Those who mean me harm, those who want me dead, they are all here. And, and, And the binding custom of ancient hospitality required this. The host is responsible for his guest. If I invite you to my house and then someone kills you while you're there, that's on me. I'm responsible for your welfare. So so here's what David is really saying. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies, therefore my enemies are not just my enemies anymore, they're yours. 
For his people, God has made their enemy his enemy. So David's able to enjoy the feast. Even though he's surrounded by people who want to kill them, kill him, because he is confident that God has his enemies under control. It's not just they're mad at me and God doesn't want an ugly scene in his house. My enemies have become his enemies. He's prepared a table. Then he says, look at my head. Basic hospitality today involves somebody comes to your house and you say, hey, can I take your coat? Or can I offer you something to drink? Or if you come to my house, it's, I just throw that coat wherever. There's stuff in the fridge. Make yourself at home. Uh, but if you are actually a hospitable person, uh, you do those things. Not, not in these days. In, in these days, you would wash your guest's feet, which was sort of just a sanitary deal. Uh, you've got filthy, filthy feet from traveling. Uh, you, would, you would have a servant wash their feet. You'd have a servant anoint their heads with fragrant oil. Washing the feet is just sort of hygienic courtesy. Anointing with oil is just, just this generosity that says, I'm glad you're here. I'm honored that you have come into my house. I, I'm glad that, that you're here. And nor, normally the host would have a servant do those jobs. But what does David say? David says to God, you anoint my head with oil. Finally then he says, look at my cup. Scripture uses the word cup metaphorically a lot, and it, and it does it here. When it, when it uses the word cup metaphorically, it just means your lot in life, your circumstances, even your final destiny. So Jesus does this in, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he's to be arrested, and he says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So what is Jesus talking about when he says, let this cup pass from me? He's talking about what's about to happen. He's about to be arrested, falsely tried, falsely put to death in the most shameful, brutal way possible. More than that, the cup of God's wrath was about to be poured out on Jesus. And Jesus says, if it be possible, let's do some other thing. Well, David's using cup in that, in that circumstance too. It's, it's where you have come. It's your circumstances. It's your lot in life. And David says what? My cup, it overflows. This is just an incredible picture of God's extravagant kindness. If God gave David what he deserves, his cup would be filled with wrath. His cup would be filled with judgment. His cup would be filled with condemnation. But God took the cup that David deserved. God took the cup that I deserved and he handed it to Jesus Christ. He poured it out on him and Jesus drank it all. Every drop, every drop of that condemnation, every drop of that wrath, every drop of that judgment, Jesus took upon himself for his People And here's where the gospel is even more amazing. He did not then leave the cup marked Jason empty. He emptied it. He purified it, but it didn't stay empty. He filled it with blessing, with goodness, with mercy, with compassion, with favor, with, with overflowing grace to me. And David says, when he refilled my cup, he did not leave it half empty. He kept pouring. He filled it to the brim, and then he didn't stop pouring my cup overflows. My cup was full and God kept pouring blessings on me until it went everywhere. 
The truth is, Christian, you can live in expectation of this kind of kindness from God. Again, this song is only for God's people. It's not for everybody. But Christian, you can live in expectation of God's continued kindness to you in that way. That kindness David describes was not a one-time shot for you. Psalm 23 is a great comfort to people who are grieving. But it's unfortunate that the only time so many of us think about it is at funerals because Psalm 23 is a song about what Jesus does for us right now. It's a song about what God does in our lives, not just in our deaths. God is faithful, and we can count on him every day. There are so few things we can count on in this world. Your health, it's not something you can count on. It'll fail you. There's, there, there, there are every day people who have meticulously watched over their health, and then they just fall over dead. We don't really know why. We find out they had some, some secret heart defect. Or they crossed the street at the same time a bus was going on the street. Your health is not something you can count on. Your money may run out. Your loved ones may forsake you, but you can count on God. You can count on God. David says then in verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Goodness and mercy, these, these twin attributes of God. Charles Spurgeon called them God's footmen that follow God, God's children every day. Goodness and mercy that follow God's children. Well, why do, why do we need both of them? John Phillips said, goodness takes care of my steps. Mercy takes care of my stumbles. You, you need the goodness of God to help you stay on your feet, to, to, to walk according to the will of God, and you need the mercy of God to help you when you fall down. Mercy picks you back up. Mercy gives you a new start. But notice, though, what David says. Surely goodness and mercy shall do what? Follow. Goodness and mercy, follow me. Here's what it means. You may be hearing this and going, you know what, I don't feel the goodness and mercy of God. I've gone through some difficult, some horrible times in my life, and in those moments I did not feel the goodness and the mercy of God, and the truth is we don't always feel it. We don't always see it. Sometimes these are the kind of things that are best seen in the rearview mirror because they're following behind us. And then we find out they were there all along. There have been dark times in my life where I've said, God, I have no clue what's going on in you, but I trust you. I know what your word says, and I choose to stand on that. I choose to believe it, whether I feel it or not. And then it's not for years later that I look back and say, God, your goodness and your mercy were there. I just didn't see it. Not only can you count on God throughout this life, you can count on God beyond this life. You can count on God for all eternity. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That closing statement of Psalm 23 reminds you this, that when the Lord embraces you, he will never change his mind about you. 
Goodness and mercy will follow me all through this life, and then I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And the truth is, we get so caught up walking through the valley of the shadow of death, not feeling God with us, not feeling his goodness and mercy, and we have to rest on the fact that God has told us unequivocally that he is there. He's there with us. His goodness and mercy are there with us, and that we will dwell in his house forever. And I tell you, in a million years, in God's presence, when you look back on that dark period in your life, you'll go, you know what? Everything was okay. We, we, we live our lives like those sheep. I'm hungry, I'm going to eat this. I'm thirsty, I'm going to drink this polluted water. We're, we're just absolutely all about the now, living for the moment. We can't see past it. And the Christian is called to think in eternal terms. This is a real valley of the shadow of death. David doesn't pretend that's not a real thing. This is a real thing, but I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David knew pain. David, David lost a child, an infant. Not only did he lose it, but he had the, the actual straightforward word that God killed it. He didn't just lose it. There weren't a lot of why. It was God did this. And what did David say? Did he say, my life is wrecked, I can't go on, there's no way I can continue on in this life? He said, no, he's not coming back to me, but I'll go to him. David was thinking eternally. David looked at this horrible circumstance in his life, and he thought, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Christians, nothing in the universe Not even death can separate you from your shepherd's Savior. You are surrounded by his sovereign, loving care. He will always be watching over you. He will always be walking with you. He will always be welcoming to you. That's what he's promised us in his word. And then he has wrapped you up in those promises so that if he didn't do those things, his name's on the line. And God's name will never ever be defamed. Worship team, if you want to make your way up here, I want to close this morning in a way that I hope helps us to recognize how great the realities of this psalm truly are. Looking at this psalm from a different angle, David Paulison wrote something he called the Anti-Psalm 23. He described the desperation and loneliness of many people, of those people who don't know Jesus Christ as their shepherd and friend. And I want you to listen to these words. I especially want to put a plea out to you if you're in this room and you're one of those persons who maybe has been forced to come to church, but you're not a Christian and you know it. You're not walking with God. I want to see if you hear yourself in these words. The anti-Psalm 23. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing is quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle and I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist, I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life is confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? 
I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death, death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I am alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me, and I'm so much all about me, sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free-falling into the void? Sartre said, hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death, and then I die. You may be here this morning, and you totally identify with that anti-psalm. It's not hard to see ourselves in some of those words. Even those of us who've been walking with the Lord for a long time can see patterns of that kind of thinking that creep into our lives all the time. But let's compare that. Let's compare that with the real Psalm 23. Let this psalm draw you to God. This is what you are invited to. Every person in this room, you are invited to this. Christians, this is your story. You're invited to believe it. Let's stand up together. We're going to read this and then we're going to sing together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Truly goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord.